but can I just say one more tidbit about FHB? Oh my gosh. I yeah. Yeah, because I know you have to go to bed, but here's this one thing that I really love about her. Um, During the Chicago World's Fair, her publisher wrote to her and they were like, hey, there's going to be this stall at the World's Fair and it's all going to be like awesome books written by women. Like, we want you to participate. Like, are you interested? And like, which book should we send? And blah, blah, blah. And she was like, she wrote back this letter like, I am a writer. If I have to be a woman, and it's like capital, capital letters, woman, one more time, I'm going to scream. Can I not just be a writer? And then at the end of the letter sentence, it just says, but I guess if everyone else is doing it, I will too. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I want that like on a print. Please can we make that a print? Because like- Women in comics so are still having that same conversation. Oh now. my God. I like, literally underlined it and just in the margins wrote, Frances Hodgson Burnett does not want to sit on your f-ing woman in comics panel anymore. Yeah. I I remember being like so excited because someone like, I was asked to speak on a panel at a comics event um, not about diversity. <laughs> I was like, and like what am every, I gonna say? The panel that I talk on at Thought Bubble, like I was just at a Comic Con this weekend and I spoke on a panel called The Best Thing I Read All Year. And I'm like, I don't have to talk about my gender at all. This is nice. True. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that pits Jane Austen against all three Bronte sisters and for the month of September and possibly for the very last time, Frances Hodgson Burnett. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, Team Austin. And I am your host, Lauren Burke, Team Bronte. But for this month, Team Burnett, and I'm sure we will cover her in the future, I have to say, because... Um, I was just trying to be dramatic, uh, really. Okay, good, good. I... <laughs> good. Because um, I just, you know, I finished her bio yesterday. I picked up a second bio and I was uh, skimming through that. And I have to say, um, I feel really guilty because I think that I just have, you know, not been giving you guys enough Francis. This woman had a really fascinating life. And now I'm like, okay, this week I am just going to speed talk through all of these notes. I'm not going to interrupt. Not even one time. Oh, but I love it when you interrupt. Okay, maybe one time. Okay. Uh, that'll keep you awake because I know it's very late for you. <laughs> it's a little late. So, you know, just every once in a while, like, just say something so I know you're not asleep. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> She's totally going to fall asleep, you guys. Okay. It happened before. Yes, I know. All right. Try not to burp. Hold on. <laughs> I think I'm safe. I think I'm safe. I'll try not to fall asleep if you can promise to not burp into your t- microphone. <laughs> try. Okay, so last week I promised you a sexy Francis, didn't I? I was like, hey, next week oh, we're going to cover sexy like, Francis. I did. I, I over-promised, probably. A little bit. But there's some good stuff in here, I swear. So, Hannah, do you know what I actually find sexy when I say sexy? A man in a bathtub full of melted butter. (laughs) Is it that? I guess it depends on which man. 
Is it John in a bath of butter? <laughs> it is not. Okay. What I find very sexy, what I aspire to be in the world of sexy, is just like a woman who is feeling herself, who is just like in control of her career, who's just like powerful and confident and like channeling Kate Blanchett in those like amazing pantsuits from Ocean's 8. I don't know if you've seen Ocean's 8, but it's like every look from Kate is like, what? I have not seen it yet. yet. But I'm going to. I know you will. And I know you will think of this every time she comes on screen. But I just really need a bunch of gorgeous tailored pantsuits in my life. Um, and just like maybe some like really great power rings, you know. Okay. So, I mean, I'm guessing as well that you're talking about FHB and not um, me in this sentence. Well, it's, it is true. I am talking about FHB because this is, uh, she's reached this point in her career. So okay. um, here she is. She's writing book after book, like play after play. She's moving from one house to a bigger house to a better house. Um, she is actually quite known for her wardrobe. Really? Yeah, yeah. She likes investing in some of these like... These dresses that are a little out there. I mean, she's not like mm -hmm. Helena Bonham Carter out there, but she's like <laughs> recognizable on the Washington scene, right? Okay. So she's like, she's like a little bit of a player out there. Um, she also, uh, she dyes her hair as well, which comes up quite a bit. People are always like that woman dyeing her hair, trying to look younger, whatever. Um one an, another interesting thing actually that I found while reading this bio, uh, her friend and her neighbor, General Garfield, becomes President Garfield. So yeah, she's like friends with the president. Is he a president of the United States? Of the United States. Which number and what dollar bill is he on? Uh, unclear and none. <laughs> not a real none a real question mark. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a few. Um, anyway, she is a power player. She's doing lots of negotiating with her publishers for like bigger and better deals. You know, she's wearing these like awesome dresses. She's going to parties. She's meeting up with Oscar Wilde, Louisa May Alcott, Emily Dickinson. Like she knows people. Mover and a shaker. She's a yeah. mover and a shaker. Um, in 1880, Frances actually goes to Nook Farm. And she goes there to work with William Gillette to improve her playwriting skills. And there she meets with some guy named Mark Twain. Can I say sidebar? I actually have two sidebars. I apologize. First sidebar, Nook Farm or Nook's Farm, whatever. I don't know it. But <laughs> <laughs> it was a community that was founded in 1851 by John Hooker and his wife, Isabella Beecher Hooker, who is the sister to who? Harriet Beecher Stone. Come on. Come on, guys. I fit it in there. Take a shot. So <laughs> second sidebar is that like her and Twain become pals. And Twain even suggests that like he and Francis and some other writer who I cannot remember. So clearly they don't matter um, that they like get a train like they charter a train all across the United States and just like meet with people and write stories and tell stories. Okay, can I ask something which is like a problematic question? Sure. Are they friends or are they like friends? Like sexy time friends. Yeah. They're like they're like writing friends. Oh, okay. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to figure out what was going on there. If the trains are rocking, don't come a knocking. 
I can't comment a hundred percent. Nothing sort of Okay, but like indicates. off the record. Well, off the record I'll say that um <laughs> Off the record that had it still no <laughs> still got not nothing. Banging. I will okay. say that um Francis is like always described as having this very sparkling personality, like a quick wit, like she fl- she's mm-hmm. very flirtatious. So um and what's funny is like reporters are either really taken in by this, uh they really love her, or they're really like um not a yeah they're not a fan like there's this one reporter actually there was like a really funny account of them like meeting with francis and they were just like oh my god she's not a serious writer because she's always talking about fashion and her feelings and i was like that sounds great um yeah exactly (laughs) so you know francis is feeling herself she's traveling a lot and um yeah and she's married to swan remember swan (laughs) I remember Swan. Yeah, that's kind of uh, that's kind of Swan. like the thing. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, remember Swan. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in terms of their marriage, like there's uh, like some of it kind of reminds me of the marriage between um, William and Elizabeth Gaskell. Mm-hmm. Um, because like Swan is, you know, he is very supportive of his wife. Like he he's like always letting her run off, you know, here, there wherever you know she's constantly working and promoting her book um now she's working in the theaters with actors and so she's always in new york or london or just you know wherever um they've like shipped off the boys to i believe they're going to boarding school and then also they go to um like stay with family members quite often right um he also was uh her business manager so he's kind of doing some deals for her on the back end, um, on top of his own career. Remember, he's okay. uh, he's building his practice. Um, he's also like lecturing at uh, Georgetown University at this point in his life. He's publishing. So uh, he's a really, really busy guy. And he starts um, the more the bigger his practice gets, the more he starts working, the more resentful, of course, like he becomes of his yeah. wife. Right. So he's kind of like. Hey, I know you've like made us all this money, <laughs> made us rich and famous. Great, thank you. But like now, it's kind of my turn, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually sends her this letter. Um, that is it's a little heartbreaking. Um, reading the letters in this book is really difficult, guys. FYI, spoiler alert. I'm gonna talk more about that later, but um. He's just kind of like, hey, I wish our marriage could go back to the days like when we were poor and broke. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, like when we were, you know, remember when we were kids and we were in Tennessee and we just, you know, he doesn't we were just get her though, does he? Yeah. Like she, like she got that couture dress for the wedding and he was like, no, we should just get married. Like we don't need the dress. I feel like they're just not. I don't know. Just they're just not- I think they're just two people that are completely out of step with each other. They're not they're not meant for each other. No. I mean, they were childhood friends, but here they are and they're like this is like my their thirties. Yeah, they're not the same people. I mean, she's very worldly, she entertains a lot, she travels a lot, she hangs out with like people like Mark Twain and he's just like, Hey, I'm just looking for a wife that's just gonna, you know cook me breakfast. Well, interestingly enough, um, it's during this time that Francis wrote this book called Through One Administration. 
and I'm actually quite desperate to read it. And it also sounds like one that is ready for an adaptation. Um, so this book examines the consequences of an unhappy marriage. Oh. And critics were kind of divided on this one. So like on one hand, uh, from like a smaller group, from a more conservative group, there was a backlash because it featured this flawed heroine. And uh, she's this woman who married a man who loved her more than she loved him. And she's just sort of quietly unhappy and dissatisfied with her life. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's quite removed from her husband and her children. So that's kind of that's I mean, that's really that is like controversial for the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sadly. And then on the other hand, there are all these critics that really loved it because it also had this unhappy ending. And so, spoiler alert, guys, in the end, um, she decides to stay with her husband. Lauren. I'm sorry. It's important that I say this. <laughs> Why? Well, I'll tell you later. So, um, you know, so, yeah, she decides to stay with her husband for the good of the family. And... Um, a lot of critics really love this because up until this point, Francis had only written like happy endings and like sort of fairy tale esque stories. Yeah. And they're like, oh, she's a serious writer. She wrote an unhappy ending, which actually really pissed her off. But she was like, I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah, she's take, like, take she's like, it's All a critical right. win. I'll take it. Um, from 1882 to 1884, she has uh, quite a setback. So up until this point, Frances is like, her output has been insane, like from the time she was a teenager up until this point. Um, she is just really unable to write uh, due to an illness. And it's kind of hard for her to put into words what it is, but it's depression. Okay. At this time, um, this is when she becomes interested in Christian science. Well, their advice to Francis is, yeah, just like, let's do lots of praying and thinking of good thoughts and this depression is going to go away. And she tries it for a bit and it doesn't really work for her. She Mm -hmm. then goes to like other quote unquote mind healers. And I really wish the book had like expanded on this because I'm like, what is a Victorian mind healer do? But is it like a therapist? It's basically like she's trying therapy and... Yeah, it's not really going very well for her. Um, She just can't quite figure out like what the deal is. So she decides, you know, what, I'm just going to lean into my work and travel and um, decides to really pull back away from Swan. And it's kind of around this point that they quietly start leading separate lives. It's unclear whether or not they like had a sit down conversation. Like, here's what we're going to do. But it, it appears that that's basically what happened um he from this point on like the letters kind of stop he kind of fades into the background he's still sometimes acting as her business manager so that's like when he'll pop up and like letters to her publisher but sometimes i also do wonder i'm just throwing this out there as well like she was quite writing sometimes i wonder if she's writing the letters to like put a little bit of distance between you know i i wonder yeah um maybe maybe not um, in 1886, she meets a very handsome and charming doctor. His name is Stephen Townsend. Now, Stephen lays down this big sob story to Francis 
about how he always wanted to be an actor and um, his daddy just never loved him and his mother was very, very weak. And he ended up going to med school instead and became a doctor, but he's tr his true love is the theater. And if only someone would help him. And uh, I believe he's 29 at the time. And Francis is like, well, you know, I have a lot of contacts in the theater. I think you're really talented. And she's, you know, having a flirt with them. I think you're really handsome. And I don't know, maybe like you could be my business manager and you can meet a lot of people that way. And I also write a lot of plays and maybe you'll get a part. So there you go. Why not? Yeah. So eventually he becomes her business manager. Um, and then he becomes sort of like indispensable to her. So Swan had been her business manager up until this till this point. Um, but he, remember, he's always had his own career. So he's al always like slightly removed as well. Yeah. Um, but Stephen's like really in it. He's like, oh, maybe you should do this. And maybe you should tell, you know, Scribner that Peterson's is offering you this. And then, you know, you could get this and you can get a higher royalty on this. And he's actually like not a bad business manager in that sense, honestly. Like she does start making like a shit ton of money. Um, her royalties jump. I can't remember what I said that they were at last episode, if I even said. I think it was probably around 10%. I mean, she's like at one point making like a 25% royalty and getting mm. like advances for like $5,000. Yeah, so she's like got it. She's got the yeah, yeah. She's she's a baller. So in 1890, Francis's older son is diagnosed with consumption at 16. Now, um, I knew one of her sons was going to get tuberculosis. Uh, for some reason, I always thought it was going to be her younger son. Especially while I was reading this, her two sons were um, quite different in temperament. So you have uh, Vivian. And Lionel, uh, Vivian is the younger one. He's quite sensitive and um, he is actually the basis for little Lord Fauntleroy. I mean, both of them are to a certain degree. But yeah, she definitely used to make them like those little black velvet suits and curl their hair. And um, it was just, you know, sort of traumatic for her boys, actually. Yeah, it sounds stressful. Her older son um, was very independent, pretty, pretty chill, actually seems like a cool guy. Um, he uh, actually asked his mother for a bunch of uh, printing equipment, like he was going to start his own printing press. And actually, actually, he did. And he like took on oh. small jobs and stuff. Yeah, he's, he's quite interesting. He was quite an interesting little kid. His letters to his mom are like really charming. They're like, dearest. Please forward me the funds for my little my little venture. I promise oh to gosh. pay you back with a, you know, 2% interest. Dear. Yeah. Little Lord Print or Roy, more like. Yeah. Just bum, bum. I, did that. I do. I like it. Um, so yeah, he uh yeah, Lionel gets the consumption. She rushes back home. So uh when she got the note um that he had tuberculosis, she was in Italy, I believe. So she runs back. She um, takes him to like every specialist doctor she can find. She's just like, anyone in D.C. want to see this kid and tell me he can be healed? No? OK, I'm going to take him to New Jersey. I'm going to take him to New York. I'm going to take him to Philadelphia. I'm going to take him to Germany. I'm going to take him to France. Like she really is like obsessed with finding a cure. Yeah. Um, he lives for nine months um, and then he he dies. 
in December of 1890. And she is like absolutely devastated. Like traveling, hey, if they've like gone all over the States and then to Germany and like France, they probably spent that nine months like really hoofing it. They really did. Um, And uh, she treated him like an imperial prince the entire time. And this entire time as well, Stephen was traveling with them. And as you as you know, Stephen's a doctor. So he's got his own personal doctor um, Mm -hmm. right there with him. Stephen has like really made himself um, indispensable to Francis, I should say at this point. Um, You know, he is right there with her while she's grieving. Um, He's like taking care of her affairs when she can't. I mean, obviously, you know, she was depressed before. Now this has just really like heightened her depression. Um, She is a lot of like her biographers are like she is obsessed with her dead son. But I'm like, I don't know. Like, of course she is grieving for her dead child. She's grieving and she's feeling very guilty. There are some letters later that are really hard, like hard reads. Um, One that she's writing to her sister where she's like, oh, you know, I've been thinking about it all night and I figured it out. Like it was my fault that he died because when I was pregnant, I prayed to God that he would have a happy life. And I just she's like every night I prayed like, you know, no matter what, I just hope he has a really happy life. And she's like, and we all know, like no one escapes pain in this life. So, um, of course, it had to be a happy short life. That's so hard. it's hard. It's hard. So she is um, she's pretty devastated um, by this. And um, yeah, yeah. But don't worry. Stephen's right there for her. Eventually, um, she slowly gets back into writing. Uh, one of the things that actually helps her out is she starts um, working with like a, a local hospital in London that takes in um, orphan boys, uh, TB. As I'm sure you can imagine, huge problem for orphans. Yeah. So she gives a ton of money to the hospital and they actually even like have like a wing with a special bed that has like a portrait of her son that's like, you know, dedicated to like orphan children. Um, And then she uh, starts, you know, several charities for orphan children as well and for sick children. In 1898, um, Vivian, her younger son, finally graduates from Harvard. It is uh, then that Swan and Francis decide that they are going to go ahead and get divorced. Now, this may have been for one of two reasons, uh, unclear which. One, uh, Swan will go on to sort of marry a family friend. So maybe he and just this gal were like, hey, we've been on the DL for far too long. Let's go ahead and make it official. Um, the other reason may have been that they were waiting on like Vivian to be kind of like set up, you know, they kind of like had said that they were like still together for their children, even though they like never interacted and like didn't live together for years and years and years. Um, but yeah, unclear for whatever reasons they're like, okay, this is, this is it. This is, it's time. Um, Francis actually feels like she's strong enough to withstand the scandal because remember at this time, um, she's a big, she's a celebrity. Like she's like the JK Rowling of her time. So this is definitely going to be in the papers. Like she knows that she's definitely going to like take a hit for this, but it is what it is. 1900, Francis and Stephen get married. Um, this plays out a lot like the shuttle. 
So we're going to talk about this a little bit later. But um, yeah, after all this time, she has married her little boy toy manager. Um, I will say that the papers absolutely had a field day with this because, of course, she is 45. He is 35. Um, According to the papers, he is a man in his prime and she is an old, old lady. How could this happen? Right. Obviously. 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 She's practically dead. So, um, yeah, everyone just is like, oh, he must be after her money. And I I will say this. I do think he definitely wanted the money. But also, like, he was at this point a fairly successful actor and, uh, you know, business manager and doctor. Like, he actually was okay on cash. He had never actually had, like, a cash problem. But he was... um, she was very mothering and he just um i don't know like he really loved her taking care of him yeah he had someone to look after him he did and he he loved it he loved it and um it wasn't just like the high lifestyle like i think he really um like a, like relied on her emotional support of course once they got married, um, she writes in a, like a letter to her sister, like on the honeymoon, just like, whoa, he flipped a switch. He's insane. So um, he is definitely Nigel in the shuttle. And uh, one of the re- ways that we know this, because I'm not a huge fan of like saying like this is a direct translation for this with an author. I'm always like, hey, guys, like people make shit up. But yeah. um, and even if like part of it is based on someone, like it's not going to be like a carbon copy. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I will say that Francis um, pretty much admits that the shuttle and through one administration are based on her marriages. And um, I do have this quote from her that she says, uh, "You see how I have fallen victim to that dreadful habit of looking at everything in the light in light of material." A man is no longer a man. He is material. Sorrow is not sorrow. Joy is not joy. It is material. There is something ghoulish about it. So she she knows this about herself. Um, yeah. ooh, also, another quote. This is uh, about her marriage uh, to, to Stephen. Their marriage, however, Burnett wrote in a letter to a friend, was like some wild nightmare. She added, if this monstrous thing ends in tragedy... I should like you to be one of those who knew something of the truth. So she does really, she does detail her, uh, the events in her marriage to all of her friends. And she does it quite immediately, which is very smart because it's like on the honeymoon, she's like, okay, I'm not sure how this is going to end. Is this going to end in divorce? Is this Um, going to end in a tragedy? Um, Like, how is this nightmare going to end? And so I'm going to actually leave it there because uh, we're at that point in the shuttle where we need to figure out how this nightmare is going to end. Good segue. Thanks. Bloody hell. Right, I guess it's me now, isn't it? It's all you. (sighs) Oh, my God. R.I.P. Ooh. Okay. So we're with Betty on the marshes. We're thinking about Nigel and how he seems to be deteriorating. We then kind of shift over to Nigel, who by chance while he's in town, he bumps into that dancer, Teresita, that he's gone off with. 
And she kind of says to him, like, oh, you've got the look of a man in love, but in love with someone who doesn't love him back. Mm-hmm. It was so we're just great. kind of, yeah, exactly. And we're right. kind of getting across that he is obsessed with Betty, which we knew, and that it's unhealthy, but like people can see, and he looks ill and he looks unhinged, right? Yeah. And Betty kind of announces to Nigel that she's finally inviting her father to come to England. And Nigel sees this and kind of declares that it's an act of war. Mm-hmm. And he says to her, he says, like, leave me with with Rosie. You know, you go, you've put the estate in order and just leave us to it. Like, just leave me to live with my wife. But Betsy reminds him of kind of just how badly he's treated Rosie and why that isn't an option. Mm-hmm. And she says to him, you broke her spirit and her heart. You would have killed her if I had not come here to prevent it. And he says... I will kill her if you leave her. Yeah. She's a fucking creep. <laughs> like this, my notes on this, I really felt like um, FHB ramps up the horror mm-hmm. in these last seven chapters. Like it feels like a totally different book. It really like, does. I really liked the ending. Um, like this, this for me was really good. I thought it really picked up. Um, and Betty just lets him kind of rant and rave and, and talk to her and tell him all of her plans and, and tell her all of his plans, sorry, and just all of these like wicked thoughts that are in his head. And she just kind of looks at him and is like, I did not want to believe that any man could exist who had not one touch of decent feeling to redeem him. It did not seem human. And Nigel's like, oh, my feelings. Yeah. <laughs> and he runs off. And he's like, I can't believe you said that. And like, that's one of the really wild things with Nigel is that he cannot understand why Betty doesn't like him yeah like he's absolutely lost the plot really yeah he really has um so then Betty tells Rosie that she's asking their father to come and Rosie tells Betty that she understands why Betty feels like she can't stay there anymore and it's because of Mount Dunstan and there's this whole speech from Betty about how their father will see the situation differently because he has the mind of a businessman and there are you know certain things that Mm -hmm. only men can see and only men can do and then Rosie kind of confides in Betty that she does love Mr. Folliot and that she feels guilt because she was married you know and she had these feelings for another man and I really loved the um, the kind of ocean imagery that FHB starts using about the tide as a metaphor for love. Mm-hmm. So it says the tide had crept around her also and had swept her off her feet, tossing her upon its turf like a wisp of seaweed and beating her each day farther from firm shore. Is that where yeah. swept off your feet comes from? Ooh, I don't know. But if but it's not, it's that's good. like a clever way of putting a cliche in there, isn't it? It like, really is. Um, so Rosie kind of says, like, Mr. Folly, it doesn't know. Nobody knows you're the first person that I'm telling. And then this prompts Betty to openly acknowledge her own very deep love for Mount Dunstan. And then Rosie, out of nowhere, is like, oh, by the way, sometimes I like just sit here thinking about stabbing Nigel. <laughs> just like stabbing him like a bunch of times and then she like uh does like an uh imitation of stabbing Nigel <laughs> and Betty is just like what is no 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 let's not and she's like yeah I really so, can't I mean, leave now when you're when you're reading it just like pause that scene and watch the um 
I didn't do it song. What was it from the Chicago. musical? <laughs> Chicago. Yeah. Is it called I Didn't Do It? I think so. Yeah, watch that because that's what Rosie's doing. And she says that she feels wicked for thinking about it and that it's made a black mark on her soul. Mm-hmm. So really atmospheric. And it's like she's peering out through like this wild mass of hair and she just keeps stabbing and stabbing, stabbing. It was really cool. Um, <laughs> so um, Betty writes to their father and says, because you trusted me, you made me trust myself. And she says to him, you know, I can't stay. You've got to go. Uh, we can't leave Rosie again, mainly because it will kind of give Nigel this sense that he's won. Mm-hmm. Like Betty's come to save Rosie. And if she leaves and no one else is there, then that that's what's going to happen. And yeah. there was some talk in the Facebook group, kind of people unsure where we leave Rosie and Uhtred at the end. But this letter details the plan, you know, or rather Betty starts thinking about what the future is going to hold. So Uhtred's going to grow up in the States and then he'll return to Stornham when his inheritance falls to him. And she pictures Rosie sailing off to America, like happy in a way that Betty can't be happy because she can't be with Mount Dunstan, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So although we don't get like a really definitive explanation of what happens to Rosie and Uhtred, I think the fact that like the plan's explained here, Mm -hmm. it's like, that's a safe bet, right? That's what's going to happen to these guys. Um, So she finishes writing the letter and she's like stood in her room and then she just hears this like low shuffling foot dragging walk in the corridor and then someone is like turning the door handle and it's really spooky and it's like proper Jane Eyre vibes and she hears this like swear this exclamation and she just knows it's Nigel she doesn't have to open the door she knows it's him. The next day, Nigel announces that he's going to go and visit Broadmorelands, who is the estate owner where uh, Folliot lives, I think, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And his reasoning is, if your father is coming, it might be as well to be able to lay my hands on things. So he's scheming, he's, he's right. suiting up, he's getting ready for the war. And Betsy arrives and she's looking really unwell, but she's never ill. So, of course, Rosie is concerned. And then the two sisters discuss Nigel's plans. And Betsy says that we are rather like ladies left alone to defend a besieged castle. So everyone, everyone's getting ready. Yeah. Betsy says that she's going to go post the letter herself. He'll just start to, you know, prepare the necessary legal steps. And Rosie says, I've been so weak and trodden on for years that it would not be natural for you to quite trust me. But I won't fail you, Betsy. I won't. So she's really like, the timing could not really be better for this. I think like Rosie's finally getting to a point where she can, like she needs the support, but she's not, she's not the girl that we meet at the start of the book. Right. Right. So while out and about, Betty hears that MD might be ill from the old typhoid. And she starts to think about her money and all of the things that she could do with it and how obstinate he is because he won't let her help. And then when she returns to Stornham, everybody's favorite vicar's wife is there mrs brent and she has come to say that yes md has the typhoid and everyone is just there like ready to ring these death bells yeah and bet you know it's like by the way they're getting ready to ring the bells and betsy i think because because of her position in society because of his position and etiquette and everything and uh, not wanting a scandal the only thing that she can do, she can't go to him. So she says, 
to Mrs. Brent, she says, we should hold a service for the sick and dying so that people can pray for him. And this kind of changes Mrs. Brent's opinion of Betsy a little bit because she hadn't realized she was like a, a godly person, mm-hmm. right? So they throw this service, this church service, um, and people have been so moved by his behavior during the sickness that there is a lot of crying. People are very upset by it. People really don't want him to die. And Betty has a religious moment, I think. She feels like the, yeah. the a brush from God. Yeah. 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 And then she receives a letter from Penzance, um, just kind of being like, yeah. He is really sick. Everyone's just like, by the way, really sick. And so to distract <laughs> herself, just in case you thought maybe he wasn't, by the way, he's really sick. Like it's not um, a joke. So she goes to see Kedges to distract herself. And Rosie does her best to try and distract her and keep her mind off it. Um, I'm really sorry, but that whole chapter is actually missing from the Persephone book. Oh no. The church one. Yeah. So kind of the first instance of us finding out that Mount Dunstan is sick is just not in the Persephone edition. So it must just so, feel like, yeah. Okay. It was really yeah. hard to make notes on it because I was like, oh, this is really like, this is a really important bit. It felt really important, but it just it was non-existent. Um, in Medius Res coming up, my favorite my favorite term. So mm-hmm. I've got this great quote because this is where I think uh, shit gets real, right? Mm-hmm. So it was one of those days of the English autumn which speak only of the end of things, bereaving one of the power to remember next year's spring and summer, which, after all, must surely come. Sky is grey, trees are grey, dead leaves lie damp beneath the feet, sunlight and birds seem forgotten things all that has been sad and to be regretted or feared hangs heavy in the air and sways all thoughts in the passing of these hours there is no hope anywhere yes sucks sucks to be baby right now really would love fhbe to write a star wars movie (laughs) what what's epic i think she she can yeah it feels epic i like it I want I want FHB to write like some Game of Thrones. That's what I want. Like, yeah. come on. I don't know anything about Game of Thrones, guys. Suit of mail. Suit of mail. So Betsy's going around. She's visiting all of the villages. There's this great quote. As she walked steadily over road and down grey lanes, damp mist rose and hung about her. And she did not walk alone. Fear walked with her and anguish. Yes. So she returns to Stornham. Rosie's like, you need to rest up. And Anutrid's like, I love you so much today. Like he's just <laughs> sprung out of nowhere. Like he's, we've not had him around for a little while. And now he's like, I really love you. And she's like, get away. My boyfriend is dying. Goodbye. Yeah. Um, and she tries to think of New York as a distraction, but it's not working. So then she decides to go riding. She summons her maid to help her get ready. And just as they're finishing up, what does she hear? Death bells. So Mount Dunstan has died. Yeah, he's dead. Dead. Dead as a doornail. I was like dead. shocked so dead. when this happened. I was just I was like too. slack jawed. I could not believe it. Um, Rosie's oh, no. like cannot hear these bells. She's like sat in the house and the servants just walk in. They're like, oh, we're just going to open the window real quick so you can hear these bells. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty um, insane. And then she like looks at the door and Betty's just stood there in her riding habit, silent. And then she says, that bell is tolling for the man who taught me to know. He never spoke to me of love. I have no word to remember. Yeah. And then she says uh, that she'll hear the bells to the end of her days. And then she says she's going riding. 
I feel yeah. like there's there's some like Marion Dashwood happening here, but not like you know Marion Dashwood doesn't really. She's a child. She's a child. <laughs> but like the whole, I don't know. Like he never really said anything. You're unsure, but you're so sure. So then you're going to go walk in the rain and like look at yeah, his house yeah, yeah. and then die in the cold. Right. Right. So she goes out. Yeah. So she goes out into the marshes and like Jane Eyre. Um, she talks to Mount Dunstan, she calls to him and she says, I loved you. I wish you loved me. And then she kind of like is a bit of an arsehole to her horse. She rides mm-hmm. him so fast and hard and just like all across the marches, marshes to the point that like the horse stumbles and she's like, oh shit, it's really tired. So she gets off and they're walking along, but then the horse slips and falls and then she falls and she sprained her leg and the horse has sprained its leg. And they're right outside this creepy old house. So she ties the horse up outside and she goes into it. It's like evil looking, you know, it's abandoned, but then mm-hmm. also still used by tramps. And there's like an old fire and like straw on the floor. And guess who comes down the road? Guess who just happens to be around? Our villain. Everybody's favorite boy, Nigel. <laughs> so he comes riding down the road. And as he gets closer, he's like, ho, it's that horse who's got a name, but I can't remember what it is. <laughs> and he's like Betty is in that house and she's gonna bang Mount Dunstan in the house like a dirty hoe that's his like summation of the of the situation right yeah yeah but he goes in and as soon as he establishes that Mount Dunstan isn't there bearing in mind that Betty does at no point say he's dead at, right. at the start of this conversation he, he just starts like laying into her he's like he's got some really good insults he says it takes a New York millionaireess or a Roman empress, or one of the Charles II's duchesses to dump as, uh, to plunge as deep as this. I'm like, ooh, burn. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really understand it, but. <laughs> He's did saying Charles, things. He's did raving. Charles II have a bunch of duchesses? He must have, must Was have. Was he a womanizer? Let's go with yes. Yeah, let's go, yeah. And so Betty's like, hey, if you touch me, I'm gonna whip you. And Which I was he, like, let's do it. Yeah, do it. Well, it would have been good. He could have had like a little scar or something. Yeah. Um, he then realizes that she's actually injured and cannot escape. Mm-hmm. And um, it's described as the situation and her powerlessness were exciting him, which is disgusting. And so then he, very true. Very on point. Yeah, very true. You're like, oh. uh, he's like, I'm going to go and hide the horses. And like, Again, a couple of people were confused. Like, I don't know. Like, that's not a good plan. But he, he, he's gonna like rape Betsy, right? Like, let's not have any. When he she says that, I'm away. like, oh, he's planning to be there for a while. Yeah, he doesn't want to be interrupted. It's like, yeah, you can yeah. bar the door, but if someone sees the horse, they're gonna come in and investigate and make sure no one's hurt, right? So he is like, he's plotting. He's yeah. Like, that made me think he had a much larger threat. plan than just not only not only raping her but i thought he was going to try to like imprison her for a length of time or i don't i don't think it's going to be for a length of time because people would go looking for her and they would get yeah. but he does make a really big point of of saying like what do you think people are going to say if you go back and say that you rode out into this house like you know cuz like there's reputation at stake he doesn't believe that she would be able to admit anything cuz that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons he thinks she's not going to run away as well because of what people will say. What they will say. And he yeah. goes on about it. Um, he is like super turned on by the fact that she's been crying as well. And he says, perhaps I shall make you cry sometime, dear Betty. 
Mm-hmm. And he makes the comparison to a feudal castle and how he can do anything he wants to her. Bearing in mind, this is stark contrast to the Red God, uh, Godwin story, which obviously um, caused some consternation when we heard that about him, like taking the girl off and locking her up in the castle. But again, doesn't do anything to the woman, right? Like he locks her up and like does all of these feats, whereas Nigel's yeah. interpretation of taking women and having her locked up is that you can like physically ab- abuse her. Right. Right. And just and just do what you want. Betsy realizes what his plan is, says that she's not afraid because Mount Dunstan has died and that's like the worst thing that could happen. Mm -hmm. And then she calls on him to stand between them and he leaves anyway. Um, He like goes out, locks the door behind him. And then despite the pain, she manages to escape out of a back door and says, if I'm to be killed, I will die in the open. I will die in the open. And all the while, all the while that she's trying to escape, she keeps calling on Mount Dunstan, you who have died today. And then a little ways off, she sees this wigwam of hops poles and is like, I'm going to hide in it. But then she falls into a ditch. Yeah. But it's a really good ditch because there's a big pile of hop poles next to it and there's a big bush over it. So actually she's like super concealed. Mm hmm. Nigel goes back into the house. He's searching everywhere for her, but it's dark. He can't see her and he keeps at it for a really long time. And he just keeps talking to her the whole the whole time he's looking because he knows she's nearby. She can't get away. She doesn't have a horse. She's she's uh, injured. She can't get that far. Um, and his like super villainy is in his like words too. Like that's how he... Yeah, he's like, he's yeah. like, it's, it's pointless. You like, there's no point in trying to run away. Like, I know you're there. Just come out. Just come out. Like... He he knows that if he keeps talking, he can. Well, he thinks that if he keeps talking, he'll like break her down. Right, coming out. Um, he sees the hops tent. He thinks that she's in there, and then he absolutely loses his shit when she isn't. Never, never realizing the whole time that he's like going mad. That um, she's just like in a ditch next to his feet. Right, like mm-hmm. close enough that when he starts smoking a cigar, she can she can like smell the smoke on the air. Yeah. So he then goes back into the house for a little while. And then when he comes out, he makes this big announcement. And he's like, look, I just wanted to teach you a lesson. I've prepped a fire. You can go in there. There's matches. I'm going to go past the house on my way home. And I'll tell them where you are. And they'll come and help you. But And then he rides off. But Betty's like, I do not trust him. I'm just going to sit here and wait. Right. Which is right. Because he comes back on foot. Like just sneaking up to the house, like silently. He like lets himself in. He quietly opens the gate. He goes up to the house. And his plan was to catch her unawares, to let her think that she was safe, let her guard down and then go mm-hmm. in and then just do what he was going to do. Right. It's like his favorite thing. So he comes back out when he realizes she's not there. But somehow this great horse who's compared to a war horse has gotten loose. He has a boxing match with the horse. And then... He has a boxing match with Mount Dunstan because yeah. he's not actually dead. He just like appears out of nowhere. He he like comes in riding on the back of a horse. You hear like the gallop of his hooves before you know who it is. Before they fight, Nigel does try and lie to Mount Dunstan and say that Betsy was hysterical when she heard the bells and that she ran away and he was trying to help her. And then she just like climbs out of this hiding spot and she's just like, no, not true. Actually not true. And Mount Dunstan carries her inside, closes the door, and then he beats the shit out of Nigel. Yeah. So, and I think, doesn't he say, like, oh, you heard a dog howling or something like that? Yeah, he does. Yeah. Um. So then he goes, uh, after he's beat up Nigel, 
He goes back inside. They reveal that they love each other. Silly things. They've been keeping it. They've been keeping it in and they didn't realize that the other one loved them. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, they have a, a nice cuddle on a horse. <laughs> uh, Mount Dunstan explains that um, an old man had died, actually, and that the bells were being rung for him and not Mount Dunstan. And he didn't like hear her voice, but she did hear him calling to him. Right. And so he just rode out. People didn't want him to go, but he was like, I've got to go and find Betty. And then doesn't he like bumps into Rosie and Rosie's like, we don't know where she is. She's like on the marsh, yeah. but she's like yeah. gone. So he's been out looking for her. And that people are like screaming because they see him riding past and they're like, shit, a ghost, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, it's quite the thing. It's quite the thing. It's, it's dramatic. And then when mm-hmm. they get back to Stornham, Jennings is like, oh, do you mind if we like run up a flag just to let people know that Betsy's safe, like she's the queen or something? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, so Nigel is like, well, you know what? I've got plans. I'm going to just see them through. He just mm-hmm. goes to Broadmorlands. There's an old man. Um, so Broadmorlands is the old man who won't forgive his wife for running away with a priest, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Nigel, raggedy Nigel, bloody beaten Nigel, goes to Broadmorlands just on the back of a potato cart. And it was really satisfying. And there's yeah. some really lovely dialogue. And the man's like, I'm going to town to sell my taters. <laughs> I read that out loud so many times. Um, so he then goes to an inn and he stays there for five days, just like resting and gibbering and raving and just trying to like get his strength up and really just stewing in like this, this pot of like wicked thoughts, which is what Betty was like, don't, don't do that. And he eventually goes to see Broadmorland, who is so put out and so annoyed that Nigel's there. And Nigel's not making very much sense. And he's talking about a subject that this guy does not want to talk about. He's just like, please do not. And Nigel is just about to reveal his like big fake secret about Folia and Rosie when he has a stroke. Yeah. And he just like slides out of his chair and lies in a huddle on the floor. Yeah. And that's Nigel. That's it. Next thing we know, the Vanderpool parents have arrived in England, but before they leave the boat, they receive a note to say that, yes, Nigel has had a stroke of paralysis. Mr. Vanderpool goes to Stornham first. Betty meets him at the station. They catch up. A few days later, Mrs. Vanderpool arrives and says that she will never be parted from Rosie again. And there is this like lovely moment where um, Mrs. V and Rosie are just kind of like left alone together in a room. Mm-hmm to do what they've got to do and while that's happening Mount Dunstan and Mr V have these long absorbing conversations and Mr V says I wonder if my world appealed to you as yours appeals to me and Mount Dunstan says he has nothing to offer he's very honest he doesn't want Mr Vanderpool to let any kind of romantic ideals run away from him but Mr Vanderpool really doesn't think that like Mount Dunstan's poverty is going to affect their love and says that if they had been too young tinkers by the roadside they would have done together and defied their beggary and in the end we're just left with Nigel surrounded uh, surrounded by all of aid and luxury and medical science could gather around him and he never recovers and dies yeah very Saint John very Saint, Saint John. and then we get a little bit more about the shuttle and then and then that's the end of the book that is that's the that end is. 
Um, well, let's maybe talk a little bit about like Frances and where she was at when she was writing this book, because I think that might actually give us a few clues into the ending. Mm -hmm. So um, she started this book in 1900. She was really interested in dollar princesses. That was actually quite uh, the thing. Now, this is the same year she married Stephen. Mm -hmm. And... Um, she does put the book down right like after um, right when Betty's on her way to see Rosalie for the first time. Mm -hmm. So she writes that first bit like they get married and then she's like, I can't continue with this. <laughs> and she struggles with this book for like seven years. Yeah, I think you so. Can tell. I think you can really, really, really tell. Um one thing about the ending I have to say is that the ending really strikes me as something that's very visual. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it would like translate well on screen or on stage. Um, I mean, this was adapted for screen, so it was a silent movie. Um, but also at this point, Frances, like everything she writes gets adapted right away. Yeah. So I think a lot of her writing, she is now trying to change uh, her mindset when she's writing prose. Like, OK, how am I going to write this to be serialized and how am I going to write this to later adapt for the stage? And she really struggled with this a lot. Like it, I told you last episode, she wanted to write all the plays so she could get the money, obviously. Um, but yeah, like a lot of her plays aren't really well reviewed. Like. It just she really struggles with it and she works with a lot of dramaturgs to like try to strengthen those like visual skills, but um, it's not really working well. So I kind of think that she actually is writing this ending with that in mind. OK, yeah, because I feel like uh, like it literally is the hero riding in on the horse at the end and like saving the girl and like. Oh, I think like but even not even just that, but like the the Nigel stuff. Like, obviously, I was saying about, like, Rosie and Uhtred, they must go to America, right? Like, they're not going to stay at Stornham. But then I I just, had, like, couldn't shake this image of, like, you know, you've got, like, Nigel in bed next to a window. There's this nurse pottering about and like, everything's steady cam, right? Everything is steady cam. <laughs> Um, and you're in this like bright, like really well lit room. He's being tended to. And then you come out the door, you go down this really long, dark passage, maybe down some stairs. And then the further you go, you can hear like the sound of a child running or like some laughter. And then you see like Betty and Mount Dunstan like laughing together and Rosie's <laughs> there and Uhtred's there. And maybe like Lord Westholt is leaning on a fireplace with some like new bay next to him and everyone's just like happy right but Nigel's yeah, just like yeah. not Miserable. there yeah like he can't and like they're, they're just li living regardless of him and the power's broken and like he doesn't like he doesn't have to die for them to be free yeah he's just That's like true. his power is just gone so well guys know. stay tuned as we are adapting this for Netflix in yeah. 2022 <laughs> Um, another reason I think that the shuttle, like just the book, the way that it feels, the way that it feels is like I said, is it took seven years to write. Um, she kind of hated this book. Um, she really dragged ass on it. I, she wrote a ton of other books, like in between, um, she kind of would like pick up the shuttle and then like write a little bit and then put it back down and, you know, back yeah. and forth, back and forth. 
Um, a few reasons for this. One, um, when Stephen was her business manager, he actually, I mean, obviously being sort of the manipulative asshole that he was, he was kind of trying to break some of her personal relationships with editors that she had had for years and years. Okay. And one of them, um, I think it was Scribner's, where he was basically like, oh, um, these other guys are offering her more money for her next story. So like, bye. And they were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've had a re- relationship with her for years. Like, what are you talking about? And he's just like, I don't know. Like, who cares? Like, you're not giving us the best deal. So they were like, but, you know, the shuttle, like, we've been promised the shuttle and we're going to serialize it. So, like, when are we going to get the shuttle? And he's just like, well, I don't know. Whenever she's done with this other book. So he basically was like, Francis, you have to put the shuttle down. Like, you have to write this other book um, for this better deal. So that was part of the reason. And then the other yeah. reason was like that um, the subject matter was so hard. She did base Nigel off of Stephen and it was just very, very hard for her to get through. And very I think close. that she, it was, yeah, it was too close. And I also think she didn't really quite know like what was going to happen with their relationship. I feel like the two were sort of tied together because she didn't, yeah, I don't think she knew where this story was really going. Um, there's a lot of stuff going in there that's sort of like mimicking her own life. So at this point in her life, she has also uh, purchased Maytham Manor, which is uh, in a village outside of London. It's, um, yeah, it's like the manor. She's like the lady of the manor in this like tiny little village. And um, she comes in and like rehabs it. She has these beautiful gardens that she's working in. Um, She definitely is playing like fairy godmother to the villagers as well. Like they're all like, look at this plucky British American girl giving us money, trying to transform the manor. And Scribner's like for years and years, they're just like nagging her. They're like, we want to serialize this. We want to serialize this. And finally, it's like after seven years, they're like, listen, we are just going to start printing this. (laughs) So I think she kind of rushed the ending as well. She's like, all right, let's just tie everything up. Let's go get it out the door because I want it to be done because she never takes this long to write anything like other things that she's writing in between this, like the other five to seven books that she's writing. Yeah. Like things that she's writing in like two days, two weeks, one month. Yeah. And like, I still like, I really liked the book. Um, I like, I didn't hate the ending. Like I was, I was gripped for the last like few chapters. It's just, I don't know. It's just, it's not like a perfect book, is it? No, it's not. I really like the book. I love the, I mean, I love the prose itself. It's beautiful. Uh Like no one writes like her. I kind of like that it's a little bit of a train wreck. Like I I find it is a very interesting book. It's really interesting. I like was, I'm, I'm not a fan of Betty Vanderpool. Like even by the end of it, I was like, I mean, maybe the bit when she's in the house and she's like walking on her leg and like, hides in the ditch I was like this is good like for me the last seven chapters were great mm-hmm. and I, I found Betty like more or less insufferable for most of this novel oh I was not reading <laughs> I think I was more reading I, Nigel at some point I didn't <laughs> mind Betty I didn't mind Betty she struck me not as um someone Francis identified with but as like the hero that Francis wanted I just feel you know, like she wasn't like, allowed to be real. She wasn't allowed to be a real no. character. Yeah, I don't think she's real. I don't think she's real at all. MD is pretty real. Um, oh, Nigel is extremely real. Nigel is too real. Nigel yeah. is like the ring. 
put your copy in your freezer because Nigel Anstruthers is going to climb out of the pages <laughs> tonight and he's going to shuffle down your hallway and touch your door handle. <laughs> right? Oh my God, how effective. I mean, she's uh, really going through it too. Like at Matham, like there are really great like passages um, in the book uh, pulled from her letters where she's talking about like the abuse that uh, Stephen has like puts her through. And what I think is really smart is that Francis was really documenting this mm -hmm. um, because it's not physical abuse. No, but and it's it's and she, evidence if she can write. It's evidence. Yeah, she's like, I need people to see it. And then she's also like throwing these parties. And I think she kind of wants people to see it in person, but yeah. he's so smart. Like there's like this one big party that they throw and um, he's there and she's kind of, she like invites everyone. And I think she's waiting for him to act out like the entire time. Yeah, but and, he won't because uh, he's as evidence, But he won't because, yeah, he's he's Nigel Stephen and he doesn't do it. And he's like very charming. And everyone thinks that they live this like perfect life. And uh, meanwhile, she's writing these secret letters like he's a monster. And um, yeah, she's so anxious and sick by it. Um, she Her anxiety comes back. Her depression is definitely back. Um, she has a very weak heart at this point in her life, has a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, her and her son are sort of corresponding at this point. Her son, not a fan of Stephen at all. Stephen definitely um, tried to, you know, separate them. Um, but she's like, listen, like, no, he's he's a monster. I need to get away from him. Uh, her son comes and like, helps her one summer, like, basically escape to a sanitarium in the United States. And it's and there. hides. Is, is it where? What? Is that where she like hides? Is she hiding from him? She's kind of hiding from him, but she's kind of like, I'm going to get to America and figure out what to do. Yeah. And um, I'm going to come up with a plan to finally like get rid of him once and for all. And it's unclear like why their marriage ends, but everyone suspects that she ends up just paying him off or just letting him keep certain royalties for certain books grace she's just like just leave just leave me alone um i never want to see you again um so obviously everyone on the facebook group had their own thoughts and their own hot takes on the ending um especially nigel and the comparisons between nigel and sinjin uh mm -hmm. so lots of lots of jane Eyre connections actually towards the end mm -hmm. of the book weren't there so rachel said different deathbeds for nigel and sinjin Nigel never does get the last word, but both of them in different ways try to overpower the heroines and both are thwarted by the physical pull of real love. Hmm. Um, so Joy said, I thought it was a bit of a cheat that Nigel had this very convenient stroke. FHB has been uh, teasing it with his unhealthiness and mysterious attacks, but to have a stroke at the very time he was going to reveal his wife's infidelity was too much. I thought Betty was going to be able to defeat him in some way. And she really didn't, which is disappointing. Sorry, which is disappointing. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, the stroke is very conveniently timed. That's why, again, it feels very stagey to me. Mm -hmm. Feels uh, like movie-esque. I mean, that would play well on stage. Um, I, I think Betty did defeat him, though. Yeah, she, I really, she, a she, lot of people were saying that Betty doesn't defeat him. But um, I, I think I couldn't agree less of a statement yeah i think the 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 way she defeated him was bringing stornum back to life and bringing rosalie yeah. back to life that was 
That was the, she did the thing that he could never do. Um, and he he knew it. I mean, that's why he wanted power over her. Yeah, so. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what scene is needed to to make her def- to have her show that she's what like is she meant to run him through with a sword or you know like a couple of people yeah. are like oh she should have whipped him but it's like I mean, she doesn't need to because she's already done it like Nigel is defeated like she been, won a long time ago that's he's, the thing. he's been defeated for you know like pretty much since he gets back to Stornham yeah yeah like I think he's so. already lost when he when he comes back because she's already got the villagers on side her dad's coming over the lawyers are on side the neighborhood's on side Nigel Anstruthers is is being revealed to be like a monster more 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 and more people will side with the sisters like his his power's gone like they really if this hadn't happened it it would have to have been a divorce right and like maybe yeah. that's Francis Hodgson Burnett's like plan right because I feel like that's what the book's gearing up to. I it is wrong gearing up to that, yeah. Typhoid, but I really think there there must have been an initial an initial plan for it to to be um a divorce at the end. Like, totally agree that the the convenience stroke is ridiculous. That whole scene at Broadmoorlands was just like, what is happening? Yeah, but um, yeah, but yeah, I do, I like, I do, I do think that Betty um defeats him, but loads of people didn't think that, did they? <laughs> I liked Alicia's point because um, Alicia says, uh, as she told Rosie, the two of them didn't have the legal knowledge necessary to ward off Nigel's threats. So they had to call in the troops, especially their father. This was so smart. Bessie might not know everything herself, but she knows how to use her resources. Mm, yeah, that's a so good point. Like, you don't have to physically like do the job yourself, right? She, yeah. Like, she's smart enough that she can put the stuff in place. And that's what the whole book yeah. is is her putting things in play it's checkmate it's, it's a game of chess and like chess isn't flipping the board at the end and being like i've won it's getting yeah. someone in a position where they've you know had a stroke and are locked in a room nah because you can't yeah. plan that but i mean <laughs> the stroke the stroke was maybe i would have preferred a divorce i think um eleanor said that all along i've been feeling like i wanted fhb to show us more process which I think is a very good point. Um, I was disappointed that we didn't get to see more of the process re- rehabilitating Stornum. Um, I was expecting it to be a long process of regrowth and learning for Betty and Rosie. Instead, it was like Betty hires the workers and shows them she's smart and has money. Then they fix Stornum. Ta-da. Yeah, I um, I think if this was more of a focused book, we'd get that. I don't want that. This is like a wider story. You're not uh, in the I process. Like- I like process. I feel but like we I had think- it. I thought we had it. I don't know. I didn't feel like that was missing for me. Not into it. You won't want the uh, like redecorating scenes, like bit Why? by bit. By bit. <laughs> like I know, I know how to decorate a house. Like I get it. Like she's hired some people, but also like she isn't a carpenter. Like she's not going to build a staircase. Fair enough. Um, MD dying. Kimberly said, "I admit it. She had me going. I couldn't believe." I couldn't believe he was dead, but somehow I thought he really might have been. I was kind of the same way. I was like, is he dead? Oh, I, I was convinced. <laughs> I was like, I was like, it's fucking Villette. It's Villette all over again. I was so cross. I was like, you've got me. You got me twice. Yeah. Never reading and, another book. <laughs> and then Kimberly, I'm sure she made this this comment on person. 
<laughs> on purpose. She says, I felt like the grandson hearing the story of the princess bride. I knew he wasn't dead. You don't understand that reference. No, but spoiler alert for the princess bride. <laughs> He's not dead, Hannah. That's a happy ending. Well, the princess marries the horse. Exactly. You want to read this uh, comment by Abby? Sure. So many Jane Eyre vibes with Betty calling out for the Mount Dunstan in her hour of need and him hearing her. Bit disappointed with Nigel's ending though. I was hoping for his true nature to be revealed and for the world to see him and somehow to be banished from Stornham in favour of Betty, Rosie and Utrecht. Uh, I think the world does know his true nature, though. Yeah, he's like totally getting shunned by society. Like all of those mic drops from Lady Allenby where she's just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> she just like stares like, at him. And no yeah, one likes they, him. They only tolerated him for Betty's sake. Yeah. All oh, of polite like, society is like he's breathing a sigh of relief dead as well. Lord Tenham mm -hmm. is dead. Yeah. <laughs> dead, um, dead, dead. Uh, Kimberly said, yes, the otherworldly connection. I was reminded of the secret garden when the uncle heard the call on the wind, or was it a dream that they were in the garden? And yeah. I was like, Kimberly, that's a deep cut. Congratulations. <laughs> I was like, who remembers that? But like, that is like a little FHB, like little thing, isn't it? I remember that cut. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, it's a good cut. You're like everyone knows that. I didn't know. Everyone that. knows. Everyone knows that. I feel like Except someone else on Facebook was like, "Yeah, great point." Also, fine. I'm gonna do it. Sarah Crew. She's like, "Dad, Dad, it's me. It's me, Dad." And then the dad, who can't remember who she is, is like, "How? Uh, yeah, that's my kid." Yeah. <laughs> I can do it too. <laughs> uh. Alicia said, I think the book does a pretty good job at the end of highlighting the power of the sisterly bond. Rosalie tells Betty something along the lines of, I know you're not sure whether you can trust me not to cower again, but I won't let you down. And when she starts noticing Betty's strong feelings for Mount Dunstan, she really does try to look after her. Rosie may not be as strong as Betty, but she has grown. Is she the only one in this novel who has grown? No. I feel like every, like, G. Selden. <laughs> G. Selden has definitely grown. Um, can I just say sidebar? Sorry. G. Selden was so popular that she actually wrote another book um, inspired by G. Cool. Selden. Oh, wait, Willie. Um, I can't remember what it's called. T. Timber Room or something. Anyway, guys, Why? check Is it that out. Like another G. Name? <laughs> She just didn't want to, she was like, I'm not going to write a G. Selden, like, spinoff. I'm just going to, like, use his character, but, like, give him a different name. Ugh, that book sounds insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people are big fans, so. If there's one good thing the Persephone book did, it was cut out most of G. Selden. Wow. <laughs> just, he wow. was fine. I liked his description of potatoes hashed brown. Jeez, is he the Jar Jar Banks of the shuttle? Um... <laughs> Mount Dunstan has grown. I think he's the Jar Jar Binks of the Shessa. I think that's, <laughs> that's comment of the week. That's getting my vote for comment of the week, Lauren. It's G Seldon, the Jar Jar Binks of the Shessa. And yeah, I can award it to our host. <laughs> Thank you. Well done, Lauren. Such a throwaway Have a prize. Thank you. Um, Your greatest moment. Everyone kind of grows except for Betty, right? <laughs> 
Does Bay? Oh. No, she does doesn't care. Tiresome. Oh, Mr. Vanderpool. Mr. Vanderpool does actually, because like at the start he's like, "Marry whoever." I don't give a. I don't give a shit. And then at the end he's like, "That was bad advice." So, um, Eleanor and Rachel were talking about Daniel Deronda while reading the shuttle, and mostly because Nigel Anstruthers reminded uh, Eleanor of Grand Court. Mm-hmm. Who was Daniel Deronda? What is that? Oh, I tried reading it a, a while ago. And is it a man called Daniel Deronda? It's a book. I think it's a George Eliot. Someone George said Eliot. Eliot spelt the way George Eliot spelled it. I'm pretty sure it's a George Eliot. Is it about a man called Daniel Deronda? Yeah, I think so. Yes, it is a George Eliot. Um, I tried to, I started it in high school. So I started it 20 years ago and then I stopped. If you finish it, you can say this book took me 20 years to play. I know. It took me six years to play to play uh, Zelda Wind Waker, if anyone's interested. It took me six took, years. Took FHB six years to write this book. So It took FH. So in the six years it took me to, to complete Wind Waker, I could have written the shuttle. Yeah, you could have. That is harrowing. Got married and got divorced. I got divorced, yeah. It checked yourself into a sanitarium. Still might do that last one, I don't know. It is our last shuttle episode and we are struggling to pick a comment of the week we have lots of great comments no we're there. not no we're not <laughs> no we're not i i want to thank everyone Let's i want to thank everyone but especially you lauren <laughs> the <laughs> comment of the week jar jar binks everybody who knew who knew well i sincerely want to thank everyone <laughs> in our facebook group for making this a really awesome read-along it was great um i looked forward to the discussion every week and you guys are rock stars you guys also one read of you. like really fast yeah you do how do you do it <laughs> tell us your secrets i have to wake and up like early in the morning to fit reading in before work and between everything i'm like oh well, if i wake up at seven i can read for an hour I know. I know. Same here. So tell us like how you guys do it. Um, you can do that by just letting us know in our Facebook group or um, via other social media avenues as well. And what what are those, Hannah? Sorry, that was a long walk to that segue. That was like a nice, um, I feel like we were going for a walk through a garden in Stornham, Lauren. Mm, it's very pleasant. Good. Yeah. Uh, you can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us, bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. And as Lauren said, you can find us on the Facebooks, Bonnets at Dawn. But you do have to answer a question to prove that you're not a robot. Just let us know if you listen to the podcast. You can say that you've listened to it and you hate it and that you're just joining the group to let us know. <laughs> That's fine. If anyone wants to come on and just post a bunch of Jar Jar Binks, gifts in you know celebration of lauren's victory this week then um you do that i'm there for you that. do that for one hour and then i will kick you out all right you can't kick me out i'm a host <laughs> darn it i should change your settings <laughs> <laughs> all right guys bye bye oh wait just so it's not like half past seven at night it's like two o'clock in the morning nearly that's why i have to go to bed i just want to yeah to, i just need to get that <laughs> it's like hannah you should be in bed i'm like oh it's 6 30 and i need some cocoa